Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 75, The Navelle Offensive. Hello everyone, and welcome back. Last episode, we talked about the Battle of Eris, which was the BEF's contribution to the up-and-coming Navelle Offensive. The British had shown considerable improvements at Eris, highlighted by the Canadian Corps' capture of the Vimy Ridge and the British Third Army's capture of Bonji Le Pew. Having completed their objectives by April the 12th, the British stood too, because the main act of the Spring Offensive was about to begin. On April the 16th, 1917, Robert Navelle's anticipated offensive against the Chamis des Dames got underway. The Navelle Offensive was hyped as a cathartic victory, the attack that would end 28 months of disappointment and become France's crowding moment of the war. Instead, 96,125 Frenchmen were dead after 10 days of inconclusive fighting, sending France into its greatest crisis of the war. When Robert Navelle became commander-in-chief of the French army in December 1916, he vowed to reverse three years of heartache. France had not had much to cheer about since the Marne, and Nevelle sought to reinvigorate the Union Sacré of 1914. With Joffre now out the door, the 60-year-old Nevelle became the new face of France's war. Nevelle had begun the war as an obscure colonel of artillery, before rising to national prominence for his leadership at Verdun where he oversaw the recapture of Forts Vaux and Douaumont, catapulting him into the national spotlight. As an artillerist, Nevelle sought to use his novel formula on a wider scale. After three years of futility and disappointment, Nevelle said no more, and wowed those around him with his can-do optimism. Thus, the French government entrusted the war to a man of little experience or name recognition, hoping Nevelle was the key to the deadlock. For his offensive, Nevelle chose to attack along the Chamy des Dames Ridge, a 40-kilometer front which runs parallel to the Enne River between Reims and Soissons. Nevelle had chosen this area for two reasons. First, the Chamy des Dames had been a quiet sector for the past two years. It had not seen major fighting since early 1915, meaning the ground was still relatively intact. There was also a unique shape to the front line which favored the attackers. If you look at the map I've posted to the Great War Podcast.podbean.com, you will notice a sharp bend in the line east of Soissons. Nevelle believed that attacking on opposite sides of this bend would allow him to overwhelm the German defenses and destroy their artillery and reserves in open battle. Nevelle saw this operation taking place in two stages. Stage 1 would consist of fire and maneuver. As we've discussed, Nevelle's artillery formula called for his gunners to concentrate their fires onto narrow zones, thus creating a series of corridors for the infantry to surge through. In other words, his artillery would be organized for vertical depth rather than horizontal. Stage 2 of the operation would begin once the infantry had entered the corridors. In Nevelle's words, Stage 2 would consist of an audacious lateral exploitation, where supporting units would erupt through and destroy the German defenses in open battle. 
What made the Navelle Offensive unique in military planning is that Navelle spent little time considering geographic landmarks. This was because Navelle rejected the stratagem of his predecessor Joff. To quote Navelle, The objective of the battle is not to conquer this or that fortified position, or to gain a geographic advantage, but to beat, and if possible, destroy the enemy army. End quote. Where Joff had favored the slower and more cumbersome campaigns, Naval was all about driving at the heart of the enemy. Violence, brutality, and speed were his three pillars, and he believed that with his formula, he could achieve decisive results in 24 to 48 hours. To quote historian David Murphy, While Joff had tried to steamroller the German lines on a wide front, Naval wanted to cut through using a sharp sword. With hindsight, it is easy to dismiss Navelle's claims as unfounded boasting. I mean, after all we've seen, arguing you can alter the course of the war in 48 hours was bound to raise a few eyebrows. It should be said that few people took Navelle at his word, but Navelle did not think it was an exaggeration. His experiences at Verdun convinced him his formula was trusty and true. To defeat the Germans, you had to go straight at them with as much force and violence as possible. The slower, methodical approach had not produced results, and so Nevel scoffed at those who suggested he reduce his objectives to more limited ones. Quote, There is no such thing as a half-battle, neither in time nor in space, Nevel said. If one is considering a deliberate halt in the middle of the effort, on routes already opened through bloody sacrifice, it is better to cancel the offensive at the beginning." End quote. Now before we dive into the list of criticisms, we should first take a look at what the offensive looked like on paper. The first thing we need to establish is the sheer size and scale of the attack. Navelle planned to use three of the four army groups on the Western Front. Listed from left to right, these army groups were Army Group North, the Reserve Army Group, and Army Group Center. The heavy lifting would be done by Reserve Army Group. Reserve Army Group was commanded by General Joseph Alfred Michelet, who commanded the French 10th Army on the Somme. Michelet's Reserve Group was made up of three armies, all of which would have prominent roles in the attack. On the left was 6th Army, 10th Army in the center, and 5th Army on the right. 6th and 5th Armies would make the initial attack and establish a foothold in the corridors opened by the artillery. 10th Army would then be sent in and exploit the breakthrough. This main effort would be supported by Army Group Center and Army Group North, which would launch subsidiary operations on the flanks. These groups, Group Center and Group North, were also commanded by experienced men. Group North by Franchet de Aperet, and Group Center by Philippe Pétain. But before the ink had begun to dry, Michelet and Pétain were ringing alarm bells. Although Michelet and Pétain agreed on the principle, they believed Nevelle had overlooked some important details. Their first area of concern was the geographic challenges posed by the End Valley. The Chamy des Dam Bridge rises 130 meters above the valley, 
and its steep sides formed an interlocking series of spurs. Attacking infantry would first have to navigate the latticework of waterways formed by the Enn and its various canals. These water obstacles threatened the rapid redeployment of artillery, which was crucial to the plan's success. The French did hold several bridgeheads over the river, but these bridges were under regular surveillance by the German sentries atop the ridge. Furthermore, the plateau of the Chamide Dam did not spell the end of the attackers' problems. Once the French had made the treacherous climb, they then had to contend with the main German defense network. Unbeknownst to Nevelle, the Germans had carved the ridge into a fortress, honeycombed with underground dugouts and concrete pillboxes. Additionally, the German batteries were dug in on a reverse slope on the opposite side, making them difficult to hit with counter-battery work. So in short, the Chamy des Dames was not going to be a walk in the park. Unlike the Canadians at Vimy, the French did not benefit from underground tunnels. Most of the build-up had to take place along a 20-kilometer bridgehead between the ridge and the Aisne. In other words, the French never had the element of surprise to begin with, something Nevelle did not seem to appreciate. Philippe Pétain also raised concerns about Nevelle's deployment of his guns. Pétain was brutally honest and outright rejected Nevelle's formula. Pétain believed the success at Verdun could not be replicated on a front as wide as the end sector. There was also a severe lack of intelligence on the German positions in the area. This lack of intelligence was later compounded when the Germans evacuated to the Hindenburg Line, which altered the original plan altogether. The German evacuation had flattened the large salient near Noyon, freeing up another 15 divisions that could be deployed against the French. In just four months, the number of German divisions in the end sector had nearly doubled. Speaking of the Germans, they knew exactly what was coming. Not only could they see the buildup unfolding before their very eyes, but they also benefited from several high-profile security leaks. While it made sense for the French to select a man like Nevelle, his confidence and charisma bordered on incompetence. In short, Nevelle committed the cardinal sin of military planning by neglecting operational security. Nevelle was very cavalier with his information, and he developed a bad habit of discussing things with people who lacked the need to know. He horrified the British by discussing his plans in front of civilians and the non-military press. Security was so lapsed that by February 1917, the offensive was front-page news across the country, and it was said that every waiter in Paris could discuss it on a whim. Things were no better at the front either. In the weeks prior to the attack, morale among the Poilus soared. It was impossible for them not to be awed by the awesome buildup around them. More than 500,000 men were taking part, backed by 5,350 guns and 168 tanks. Never had the French army amassed such an impressive arsenal, and one could be forgiven for thinking themselves as part of an unstoppable force. The men were enthusiastic, and postal censors noted an uptick of optimism. As one French soldier of the 57th Division wrote to his parents, quote, 
The whole French army appeared to have gathered here for the victory push. We were in the grip of tremendous fever. Officers and men refused to go on leave to make sure they didn't miss the great offensive. End quote. The sheer magnitude of the French buildup was not going to go unnoticed by the Germans. Naturally, the Germans were curious about what they were up to, and so conducted a number of trench raids. On four separate raids, between January and April, the Germans got their hands on sensitive documents regarding the conduct and direction of the attack. The most significant of these documents outlined 5th Army's plan of attack. Using these documents, the Germans assembled a fairly accurate picture of the French attack weeks in advance. For his part, Nevel was totally aware of the missing documents, yet he made no discernible changes to the plan, believing the artillery and a lot of his troops would be enough. Now given the informational sieve that was Nevel's camp, we need to address why the offensive was allowed to continue at all. Can it be chalked up to utter buffoonery? Or were there other forces at work? It is tough to arrive at a definitive answer, but there were some factors that we should highlight. When discussing great military campaigns, it is important to remember that very few of them happen in a vacuum, and the Naval Offensive, despite its egregious errors, was no exception. The first outside factor was, of course, the situation in Russia. Tsar Nicholas abdicated the throne on March the 15th, just when the planning phase of the attack entered its final stage. In Paris, there was immediate concern regarding Russia's future in the war. The provisional government had stated its intention to honor its commitment to the Entente, but everyone knew the military situation was too unstable to make that a guarantee. If the Russians opted to make peace with Germany, this would allow the Germans to shift their eastern divisions to the west. Thus, the impetus was on France and Britain to attack, not only to keep the Germans busy, but to give Russia time to reorganize. The second factor was the entry of the United States on April the 6th, 10 days before the offensive was set to begin. At a high-level meeting on April 3rd, the possibility of delaying the offensive until the Americans could have a role was discussed but the conversation turned out to be fairly one-sided. The American military was in no way prepared for action in 1917, and if the situation in Russia changed, it was unlikely the Americans would be ready to make a difference. The third and final factor had to do with the French government. On March 20th, the Briand government fell from power. The regime's collapse was triggered when Briand's Minister of War, Herbert Leote ran afoul with the Chamber of Deputies. Leote had refused to discuss matters of French air power in a closed-door session. Leote's refusal was poorly timed, made worse by the fact that the Germans would soon regain air superiority over the Western Front, which we'll talk about next episode. Anyway, Leote resigned his post over the spat, which sparked a crisis in the Briand government. Turns out, Few candidates were lining up to become war minister three years into the worst conflict in human history. Briand was unable to find a suitable replacement, and so resigned soon after. Briand's replacement was Alexandre Rabot, an 80-year-old capital S socialist who previously served as the Minister of Finance. 
Rabot's choice for Minister of War was a man by the name of Paul Pont-Levé, an educator and mathematician who came up through the Ministry of Inventions. Pont-Levé was an advocate of total war, who reveled at the opportunity to apply his scientific knowledge to military matters. However, Pont-Levé and Nivelle did not see eye to eye. In fact, Pont-Levé opposed Nivelle's appointment, favoring the more experienced and cautious Philippe Tan. Within days of assuming office, Pont-Levé was bombarded with complaints about the upcoming offensive. The avalanche of paperwork prompted him to hold several meetings with Nivelle and his staff. During these meetings, Pont-Levé laid out the list of complaints to Nivelle, citing the German buildup and situation in Russia as primary concerns. Nivelle, however, was at his persuasive best. He dismissed the German buildup and security breaches, saying, quote, I do not fear numbers. The greater the numbers, the greater the victory. End quote. Finally, Nivelle also had a trump card. The British. As we saw last episode, January and February 1917 were a contentious time in Anglo-French relations. Nivelle had finally come to terms with Haig over the direction of the offensive. British forces were slotted to attack at Arras, so now would not be an ideal time to call it off. If the French backed out at the last minute, one could right imagine the reaction in London. For better or for worse, the offensive was going ahead as planned. The Nivelle Offensive got underway in the early hours of April the 16th. For 11 days, French artillery pounded the German lines with a mix of chemical, high-explosive, and shrapnel shell. It was during the shelling when the Poilus received their final orders. To necessitate a quick advance, they were ordered to lighten their packs and carry just the essentials. These essentials included their rifle, 120 rounds of ammunition, three hand grenades and two rifle grenades, two water bottles, a spade, gas mask, food, blanket, and tent. Dropping the unnecessary equipment made sense, especially since Nivelle expected the infantry to advance at a rate of 100 meters every three minutes. The problem was that the weather did not allow for rapid movement. April the 14th was the only day without rain or snow. Cycles of freezing weather, followed by heavy rains, damaged railways and dugouts. As a result of the inhospitable weather, French airmen were unable to accurately assess the effects of the shelling. More importantly, the downpours of icy rain, sleet, and snow had turned the battlefield into a morass. Roads were washed away, and supply caravans were slow making their way to the front, which resulted in unplanned pauses in the bombardment. And to make matters worse, the infantry had little choice but to spend their days outside waiting in this weather. Among them were men from Charles Mangin's 6th Army's 10th Colonial Infantry Division. The Colonial Division was comprised of men from Senegal and other French-occupied African nations, such as Morocco and Algeria. These men had little experience of fighting under such wintry conditions and were already up to their waists in icy water by the time the order was given. At 6 o'clock in the morning on April the 16th, 
the first wave of French infantry went over the top. Units from 5th and 6th armies jumped from their starting points and advanced into the cold darkness of no man's land. The morning of April 16th was bitterly cold, and the men were already soaked to the bone. According to one observer, the French carried their rifles under their arms like umbrellas, finding what protection they could for their frozen fingers in the folds of their cloaks. At first, the French encountered uneven resistance. They occupied the first line of German trenches and continued their slow, agonizing climb up the ridge. Once the vanguard traversed the first German trenches, the situation rapidly deteriorated. The creeping barrage outpaced the advance of the infantry, leaving the French exposed to German counterfire. Remember, the Germans were now utilizing an elastic defensive scheme. They had no intention of engaging the French out in no man's land. The Germans waited until they reached the carefully coordinated killing zones, and then unleashed a hurricane of machine gun and artillery fire. The French had marched straight into Ludendorff's trap, a network of wire-concealed machine gun nests with interlocking fields of fire tore bloody holes in the French ranks. Thousands were cut down within minutes, among them grizzled veterans of Verdun and the Somme. Nevelle's novel formula had not destroyed the German batteries, nor had it knocked out the insidious underground machine gun bunkers. These subterranean bunkers were perhaps the most sinister aspect of the new Hindenburg line. Encased in concrete, with their roofs several centimeters above ground, this provided the Germans a low but sweeping arc of fire. Many French infantry were cut in half or dismembered at the knees. The Nivelle offensive came to a screeching halt in the face of this overwhelming fire. Those units which had advanced the furthest, such as the Second Colonial Corps, were forced to turn back when fresh German reserves slammed into their flanks. To quote the second colonial commander, The enemy reserves are in effect almost intact, well protected in holes on the northern slope or in very strong dugouts. They have not suffered from the bombardment. End quote. Across the 40-kilometer front, most 5th and 6th Army units met similar fates. One soldier from the 25th Infantry Division recalled the chaos when he wrote, I ran, I shouted, I hit, I can't remember who or where. I crossed the wire, jumped over holes, crawled through shell craters still stinking of explosives. Men were falling, cut in half as they ran. Shouts and gasps were half muffled by the sweeping surge of gunfire. End quote. As his offensive faltered before his very eyes, Nevelle tried to switch tactics. He shifted 5th Army's axis of advance towards the northeast, which required the Germans to pull back from a vulnerable salient near Fort Conde. The German withdrawal opened a gap for the French to exploit. 6th Army's left flank was able to make good on this opportunity, and advanced some 6 kilometers, capturing 5,300 prisoners and stockpiles of munitions. This was to be the largest gain of the entire campaign. By the end of the day on April 16th, the offensive had made little headway. The infantry were expected to have advanced 6 kilometers in 6 hours. Instead, 
Most of the fighting was concentrated between the first and second lines of German trenches. No breakthrough had been found, and the weather continued to wreak havoc on the battlefield. With his campaign at a standstill, Nevel ordered Peytan Central Army Group to attack at 4.45 the following morning. Peytan had watched the horror show unfold and was not interested in wasting lives in a foolhardy expedition. However, Peytan also knew Michelair needed help on the flanks. Instead of sending 4th Army charging into the Inferno, Peytan did what he did best. He ordered 4th Army to attack slowly and methodically. By doing so, Peytan had deliberately violated Nevel's orders. Nevel was furious, but he could do little to discipline his subordinate. In what can only be classified as a power move, Peytan asked for additional reinforcements, which Nevel was obliged to give since the future of the offensive hinged on Peytan's advance. Unfortunately, Nevel refused to acknowledge his campaign was already beyond saving. By April the 20th, anyone with half a brain knew the offensive had failed. By this point, Nevel was a broken man. He took a humiliating tour of his army commanders and instructed them to downgrade the objectives to limited, bite-and-hold operations. That day, Nevel also met with Rabot. Nevel assured the Premier the objective was now to nibble away at the Chamis des Dames by limiting attacks to the German positions near Reims. Nevel's words were stained with dishonesty. Whether the politicians understood the scope of the debacle is still a matter of debate, but it is clear that the limited objectives was employed by Nevel to distract the government from the elephant in the room. I say this because Nevel received a message from Paris on April 23rd, which criticized his preparations for the new limited operations. Problem was, Nevel had not yet decided the date or the details of these operations. Suspecting one of his subordinates leaked information to the government, Nevel exploded with rage. He demanded severe punishment for the violation, but by this point, few of his staff officers were interested in defending him. The damage was done, and Nevel could do nothing about it. In any event, the aura that once surrounded the charismatic general had faded. Nevel tried to put a spin on it, but downgrading his campaign was an admission of failure. He promised too much and set his sights too high. Rightly or wrongly, Nevel became a self-made pariah. His meteoric rise to fame was matched by his dismal collapse to infamy. By the end of the first day's fighting, the French had suffered an appalling 100,000 casualties, including 25,000 dead. This makes the first day of the Nevel Offensive much deadlier than the first day of the Somme. Medical stations were overwhelmed. On paper, Nevel had told the medical staff to prepare for 15,000 wounded. But by dawn of April 17th, 75,000 men required treatment. The field hospitals were consumed by chaos. One hospital had only four thermometers for 3,500 beds, and there were reports of 200 wounded men assaulting a hospital train. One French poilu stationed near one of these hospitals recalled the chaotic scenes. Quote, Medical officers are overworked, 
there are too many wounded and not enough doctors. The walking wounded crowd around, demanding attention, pushing in front of their comrades, moaning on stretchers. Blood-soaked linen is deftly removed, despite the cries of pain. Bottle of ether empty quickly, spreading their atrocious odor of suffering. Soiled dressings pile up, and still, the ambulances keep coming. End quote. By April 25th, most of the fighting associated with the Naval Offensive had ended. As the smoke cleared, morale in the French ranks plummeted. Angry, demoralized, and bitterly disillusioned men flooded back from the scene of the butchery. Outside of 6th Army's capture of Fort Conde, no French units had progressed beyond the 2nd German trenches. But it should be said that the French had seized 28,000 prisoners and 187 guns. In 1915, these results would have been a cause for celebration. But Nevel, by his own admission, had promised so much more. There was no breakthrough on the end. His trumped-up promise of a 48-hour victory ended with 134,000 casualties, including 30,000 dead, 100,000 wounded, and 4,000 captured. Although these losses were lower than those of Verdun or the 1915 campaigns, the losses in Nevel's offensive occurred over a 10-day period, and exceeded those of any month since November 1914. Nevel sealed his own doom by convincing the French soldiery of a cathartic victory. France was already in a fragile state, and all Nevel delivered was more of the same. The same losses, the same futility, and the same disappointment. Given the high expectations Nevel created, disillusionment spread throughout the ranks. On May the 15th, Nevel was finally replaced as commander-in-chief. Ribot, Poincaré, and Pontlevé agreed Nevel had to go, but they needed to ensure a smooth transition of power. In an ironic twist of fate, the man once deemed too pessimistic to save France was called upon to be its savior once again. On May 15th, Philippe Pétain replaced Nevel and was given the responsibility of nursing France back to health. Nevel, whose meteoric rise was matched by his unceremonious decline, spent the next several months floating in the ether. In December 1917, he was given command of a unit in North Africa where he would spend the remainder of the war in relative obscurity. It goes without saying that Philippe Pétain inherited a shaky situation. Not only was the French army left in shambles, but it was soon infected by a far more troublesome foe. Widespread mutiny. Unfortunately, our coverage of the French mutinies will have to wait. I am still in the process of compiling my sources and did not want to wade into it before being fully prepared. For the next episode, we will remain on the Western Front, except this time, we will crane our neck upwards to the heavens. The air war during the spring of 1917 casts a long shadow over the heiress and Nevel operations. The colloquial term, Bloody April, was the deadliest month for Allied airmen as the Germans regained air superiority on the Western Front. Bloody April would also produce perhaps the most definitive icon of the Great War, 
Manfred von Richthofen's deep ruby-colored D1 Fokker triplane, otherwise known as the Red Baron. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can reach the show on Twitter, at Great War Podcast, or through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. That again is at Great War Podcast, or thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. This has been episode 75 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.